what you're going to have a phenomenon of, and I think it's going to go on through most of 2022, is that for manufacturing businesses, consumer businesses, retailers, you had revenue rising faster than cost in the first eight months, nine months of 2021. And in the last three months of 2021, now you've got costs rising faster than revenue, and that's going to continue into the first half of 2022. Investors like linear earnings and revenue developments. They just like that. And what they don't like is a lack of linearity, where one quarter you're earning 50 cents, the next quarter you're in 20 cents, the next quarter you're in 30 cents, and, and this isn't like a seasonal thing. It's just, This is like how it actually looks. That drives investors bananas and they, they tend to get emotional and you know, sell things you know, sometimes a little bit capriciously when that happens. So we think that's going to create opportunities, but it's going to be you know, kind of a wild ride as you know, these cost and revenue volatility elements you know, kind of careen through the vanilla stock market. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the QPD podcast. I'm your host, Jim Stamper, Director of Institutional Sales here at Cambiar Investors. This is part one of a two-part series, and today we are talking 2022 and what could be ahead for investors after two years of extreme volatility. My guest today is Brian Barish, CIO and President of Cambiar Investors. Brian has over 32 years of industry experience, spending the last 24 at the helm of Cambiar Investors. Brian is also the Portfolio Manager of the Large Cap Value Strategy and Cambiar Opportunity Fund which was named the 2021 Top Multicap Fund by Refinitiv Lipper. More information about this award can be found at our website, cambiar.com. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Great. So before we dive into your outlook for 2022, can you briefly reflect on 2021 and just give us your sense of how it ended? Did anything surprise you? Um, I think a reflection on that year would be helpful for our listeners. Sure. Well, I think your, your starting point in 2021 was that we had just gotten word of vaccines that that worked and had the potential to put an end to this plague upon humanity, but they hadn't actually gotten into people's arms uh, yet. So we still had about four to five months of very restricted activity, depending on what city and state you live in in the United States and around the world. Starting in May, most people, at least in the United States, had an opportunity to get vaccinated and caseloads fell, and you started having a full reopening of an economy that had been you know, shuttered in varying degrees. And you know, that's when the narrative starts to get a little bit more interesting in terms of the degree and severity of supply chain challenges. You know, if you go back to 2020 and the, you know, onset of the pandemic and various government programs and including Federal Reserve programs, to some extent they modeled their behavior after what happened in 2008, which was the last, you know, major economic calamity and you had a, you know, credit collapse and a demand side collapse and basically various programs such as Federal Reserve bond buying and economic stimulus plans from the federal government were intended to push demand up and avoid deflationary problems from a lack of demand. And as the year progressed, it's pretty clear that that was the wrong diagnosis. Like we don't have a demand problem. The financial system worked, the financial system was able 
to channel credit and money effectively to people. It's also true that the size of the fiscal stimulus, the monetary stimulus, were greatly larger than 2008. Be that as it may, we've had no problem with demand. The problem has been supply, right? So, so whether it's, it's iPhones or new cars or, you know, washing machines, like availability has been very challenged throughout the year. So it's, it's really a very, a very different paradigm that we have been dealing with. So that's been the narrative for most of 2021. And then more recently, in the latter part of 2021, you have seen, you know, the virus come back in, you know, varying degrees with uh, the Delta uh, wave in the early fall, Omicron wave as we speak. You know, the virus isn't dead, but humanity is winning effectively at this point. You touched on it, inflation. I, I, in my opinion, I think it's a key topic discussed by many investors. And for many, it's probably the, one of the greatest concerns as we move forward. Can you get into a little bit more detail about your thoughts on inflation and concerns for investors as we move forward into 2022? Yeah, inflation and interest rates are, are highly likely to be the big topics for investors in 2022 because we legitimately have an inflation problem. You know, you could make a pretty strong argument, and a lot of commentators did, that the Fed needed to make an adjustment to their thinking in mid-2021 and for some reason did not. They've been dialed into a a model that is based off of the United States' experience with uh, demobilization after World War II, and you had a lot of supply chain and demand imbalances uh, during that time period. I don't know how you can use that model today. It's so long ago. It speaks to a very different economy that was not globalized the way that the current economy is. And you know, by the end of the of 2021, uh, Jerome Powell basically retired the term transitory. Just said, I, we don't want to use this anymore. Right. And and I, I think effectively they're retiring their demobilization uh, model as 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 well, and and moving back towards some kind of neutral policy as opposed to highly accommodative. That's that's basically what they are saying. So in the interim between now, which is right before Christmas, and when they get to neutral, we're going to have a lot of inflation. So we've done our own modeling on this. And when you look at inflation, you know, you have prices of goods that you would buy in a store. And then you have these kind of larger items like the rent for your home. And what's important to understand here is that the rent for your home, or what they call homeowner's equivalent rent, because not everybody rents their home, most people actually own their home, that's a very lagging variable and it's building in a big way. So the inflation numbers as we've modeled them for 2022, you're just not going to have a lot of let up in the statistics. In other words, we ended 2021 with inflation over six for CPI and and pushing towards 5% for the the core uh, CPI that excludes food and energy. We don't see a lot of relief for either of those variables until the latter half of 2022 at the earliest. Uh, And I think we'll get there. If the Fed is not supplying this inferno with more money, it should bite. But you've got a lot of inflation and a lot of lagged variables of inflation that have already built into the system. The supply chain issues can get better for sure, but you've also seen a, a lot of businesses put forward you know, wage increases to their employees and with full expectation that they'll be able to recoup that in pricing. So you know, the way that inflation propagates 
in a developed country like the United States is through a wage price spiral. And we've got elements of that in place. I don't think it's completely out of control, but we've got elements of that that in place, which means that if you are thinking about COVID in the arc of economic history, it's probably going to be a two to three year inflation bulge. That's how we're thinking about it. So, you know, a tax in effect on all of us to deal with COVID. That's, that's basically what it's going to turn into. And, you know, we're not making highly specific predictions on inflation beyond the end of 2022. Hopefully it, it moderates. We, we think it should, but whether it moderates at 2.0 or 2.5 or 3.0, we, we don't know. There's just, just too many variables there. But that's going to be the big issue. And that is very, very powerful. You know, there's an expression that the chairman of the Fed is the second most powerful person after the president. And it, the difference between, you know, number one and number two is, is not as big as you might suppose. You know, the power to control money supply is a really big deal. So what where kind of the rubber, I think, meets the road is whether the Fed, you know, raises rates quickly or not, and also whether they start shrinking their balance sheet. But if they, if they do what's called double tightening, where you're both shrinking the balance sheet as alongside rate increases, which is what they did in 2017 and 2018, that's got a good chance of biting the financial market. And so we, we, we're agnostic right now as to whether they're going to do double tightening or not. Okay. And a lot will depend on, I think, you know, frankly, political noise as well as just how bad the inflation numbers are in um, early 22. Before we move on, you touched on it, but I think a lot of investors have felt in this cycle that low interest rates fueled equity markets. So in a higher interest rate regime, do you have an opinion on the impact of equity markets? Will it still be the place to be? I guess our listeners would want your opinion on that. Yeah. So I got a lot of thoughts. I'm not sure I'll be able to contain them to one podcast, but (laughs) you know, so there's a term Tina, there is no alternative that has been used repeatedly with respect to equities because basically your returns, your return envelope is so bad in fixed income, whether it's treasuries or, you know, investment grade corporates that it just there's no practical alternative to equities. I think the intellectual reasoning there is weak. That's a form of greater fool theory. In other words, I'll buy stocks at prices that I probably shouldn't buy them at because other people will need to buy them too. That's not very robust right. intellectual reasoning uh, there. There's huge questions, Jim, about long-term economic policy in, a, in the developed world where you basically have very little population growth, you know, a lot of uh, incremental usage of technology to decrease prices, to increase automation, a lot of excess savings for a variety of reasons. And what it adds up to is that it's hard to come up with a scenario where the terminal rate, that is to say, where the Fed tops out at before it gets to a restrictive policy, it's hard to come up with a very high terminal rate. Okay. So in, in the last raising cycle, we got up to two and a half. The market you know, basically screamed mm-hmm. <laughs> at the Fed right. like no more, and we had a very quick you know, minus 18% in the fourth quarter of 2018. And, and the Fed turned around. And, and brought interest rates back down under uh, 2%, and then things were okay. So that was the market's way of saying that 2.5, that was actually restrictive, 
and you know something around two, I think it was 175 is where they, they cut back down to, was more like a neutral uh, rate. So this is a little bit obtuse, but just try to follow me sure. here. So monetary policy in the 20th century, the Fed didn't do all this balance sheet stuff. That was very rare. Yeah. They just controlled the short end of the curve. And basically by controlling short end of the curve, you could incentivize or disincentivize banks to make loans and incentivize or disincentivize businesses and consumers to take on debt. And so it was the banking system that multiplied money, and it would multiply it faster or slower depending on the short-term interest rate. Since 2008, that dynamic has not worked correctly. And basically, the markets and the economy has been dependent on the Fed to do some monetary addition on top of the normal money multiplication capabilities of the financial system. It's not just the banks. Obviously, big corporates can go directly to the market, and, and there's you know, various direct lending schemes by consumer finance companies and so forth. But it's, it's mostly a banking sector phenomenon. And that phenomenon became turbocharged in 2020 and 2021 with the Fed adding basically $5 trillion to its balance sheet. Now, $5 trillion sounds like an incredibly large amount of money because it is. But that's just a drop in the bucket compared to the size of the bond market and compared to the size of the equity market. But those reserves get multiplied over in the financial system. So as the Fed stops adding to its balance sheet, which basically they are going to by the end of uh, March, can the financial system multiply money adequately, right? Prior to now, the answer has been no. They don't multiply the money supply adequately. And that factors into how stocks trade, bonds trade. So that's why the market is super sensitive to quantitative easing. I am skeptical that the banking system can do it all by itself. But, you know, there is a pretty strong argument, and it's worth articulating, that, you know, we've entered into an environment where we've gone from having a, a surplus of labor, you know, courtesy of China joining the WTO in, in 2002, to a, a labor deficit. And if that's true, like, the only way out is you're going to have to make workers more efficient. And clearly there has been a step function upward in potential efficiencies as a result of COVID. So we see things like telemeetings and, you know, teledoctor and teleuniversity. That's all a new, that's all a new thing that didn't really exist in a meaningful way uh, before COVID. So those, that's just one example of how, you know, there is productivity gains to be, to be had by, by using technology. So sort of the question is, do we need like this big time CapEx cycle or, you know, maybe it's a moderate CapEx cycle because this is mostly going to be technology-driven anyway, which means we don't have enough money multiplication in the system, which means, like, the, the Fed is, is going to have to get, get back into it. Uh, it it's, it's a very esoteric economic concept, and I appreciate the listener bearing with me here, <laughs> but it's, it's very meaningful in terms of whether you're going to have a high terminal uh, rate by the Fed or really a very low one because it's just really hard to get enough money multiplication in the system to keep the system going. And, you know, it's, it's kind of worth pointing out as a side comment that 
you know, the U.S. in particular, our economy has become so heavily financialized, right, in, in all, all kinds of ways. There were lots of predictions after 2008 that surely there'd be less financialization as a result of what, what happened. You know, that, that, hasn't, that hasn't been the case, no, all right? And, right? and it is, seems like entropy in, in chemistry. It's like a one-way uh, development. So, you know, a lack of money multiplication in a heavily financialized economy <laughs> You can kind of have, uh, right. I wouldn't call it a cardiac arrest. You, you can suddenly find yourself, you know, without enough liquidity surprisingly quickly. So that's just something that's out there to kind of think about. Monetary policy in the 21st century is a weird topic. We've highlighted a bunch of challenges in there, risks, also some a number of positives. I think it's a good time to just get your outlook uh, for 2022. What are, what are some of the key variables that investors should be thinking about as we head into the new year? Sure. Well, let's, let's think about just the stock market in general. So I heard this analysis from Leon Cooperman, who is a guy I respect in a different podcast that I'm just going to steal it, but credit Leon. You know, there's really three stock markets out there. There's the vanilla stock market of, you know, banks and industrials and consumer product companies and healthcare companies. And there's, you know, stocks are going to go up and stocks are going to go down and we're not calling, you know, bear market or bull market or, or anything. We just say there's opportunities there. There's the fangs, and I, I think the new name for the fangs is gamma because a couple of stocks like like uh, Facebook's changed its name, so you lost the F in, in fangs, right? So the gamma, the gamma stocks, that's 25% of the S&P 500. It's a staggering concentration, and it, it's kind of its own multi-trillion-dollar parallel universe of defensive growth, or that's that's how it's been for you know years and years uh, now. And so, you know that has continued to perform. It performed great in 2020. It performed pretty darn well in 2021, despite the reopening, the trade being on. I'm not going to make any predictions uh, there. But if you own index funds, you're very concentrated in the gamma names. And then you have a third stock market that I would call the Robinhood stock market. And it's, you know, it's a lot of very speculative businesses. A lot of them are smaller cap. You have the cryptocurrencies in there. Those aren't stocks. That's not our business. But it's a you know, very speculative landscape there. SPACs and you know, all, all kinds of things. I would say, for the most part, people don't really know what they're doing there. It feels like a speculative blow-off is probably going to happen if you have a less accommodative uh, Fed. And I think that's where the biggest uh, risks are, is that you get a, a rapid meltdown in that part of the stock market. If you look at the, the Russell 2000 index, and a lot of these stocks are part of the Russell 2000 index, 45% of the Russell 2000 stocks, so like 900 of them, do not make money. And this is in the context of record profits in the S&P 500 record profits as a percentage of GDP. So we, we don't have a lack of profits recession issue. We have the opposite. And yet we have a record number of non-earning companies in the Russell 2000. So that, that doesn't smell good at all. That, that smells uh, very dangerous uh, to me. So, so that's our forecast is volatile earnings. You know, I mentioned the Fed uh, becoming you know, more neutral. Uh, potentially a bit restrictive, but probably more neutral. Uh, the other thing is you're going to have a lot of fiscal drag. You know, the federal government you know, had multi-trillion dollar stimulus in 2020 and 2021, and they're not going to have that in, in 2022. So you're going to have a negative version of that. You know, that's you know, whether that child tax credits or, you know, other kinds of financial assistance programs doesn't look like the Biden administration is going to be able to legislate too much else, at least at this time. So those are top line negatives while you've got, you know, costs that are still galloping. I think when you get to 2023, 
probably things settle down. That's what we're anticipating. This is all very interesting and a logical stopping point for today's discussion. Thank you, Brian, for being here today. To our listeners, please stay tuned for part two of this interview as we discuss what could be some additional risks to the markets in 2022. If you're looking for more information about the blogs or awards we mentioned earlier in the show, please visit cambiar.com. I'm your host, Jim Stamper. Until next time, take care.